Why don't you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to read beginning in chapter or verse 8. And we're going to read through verse 23. Just to remind you, we do this every once in a while. I have you stand sometimes just to make you uh, be able to stretch your legs before we preach. Sometimes also to remind us that there's a posture that we listen to the word of God. Sometimes it's bowing. Sometimes we sit under. Sometimes we stand in honor of the word of God. This morning we stand in honor of God's word. Hear God's word from 2 Kings chapter 6 this morning. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a time and place shall be my camp. But the man of God said word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who, is, who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants says, None, my lord, O king, but Elijah, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And it was told, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. He saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way. And this is not the city. Instead, follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And so he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elijah said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Instead, set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And so he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of God stand forever. You, though, you can be seated. Well, um, soon after we had our firstborn, Lila, we were living in South Mississippi. Um, it's a wild and strange and native land. It's like being sent to the uh, back bushes of Africa or the Amazon. And, and we found this out rather rapidly because not only was it unbelievably hot in Mississippi in the shade. My wife was pregnant, seven months pregnant when we moved there. In the shade, it was over 100 degrees. 
uh, those last couple months of that first summer. But we also found that Mississippi was full of wild creatures, and they, um, had a, they, they invaded our house. Um, about a week after our daughter was born, our, this is our, our very first child, and of course we had all of the, the nerves and the, the, the fears that first you know, parents have, and you want to protect your child. But we began to see these little black dots crawling at various places all over our house. And it was found that we had a tick infestation. Over the course of the next couple months, we found ticks not just simply on our body, but at two weeks old, we began finding ticks on our brand new born baby daughter. This made us quite upset, and we began to bomb the house. We fogged it and bombed it by the various things you can find at Walmart or your, your, your local hardware store. But that apparently did not do it because we kept finding the ticks in our house. So then we went the professional route. Three times we had our house professionally treated at $400 a pop to no end and to no avail. Finally, my wife said, I'm out. She left the house. She traveled to Meridian, Mississippi, where her father picked her up and swept her off to salvation and left me to take care of the tick infestation until we could solve the problem. And at six months of this issue, we actually came to a place of utter despair. How in the world you kill prehistoric bugs? that cannot be squashed. I had dreams of taking ticks and putting them in a bag and stomping on them and then lighting them on fire. I hated them, but felt in which they were oppressing my life. They had captured us and taken over our whole existence. And literally, it's invaded our prayer life in which we actually were praying, Lord, deliver us. Deliver us from the ticks. Have you had that experience? Maybe it wasn't with bugs in your house, but maybe it was something else in your life in which you felt like there was something in your life that was crushing your joy, that was invading your life, that was holding you captive to where you couldn't enjoy things, and you were crying out, Lord, deliver us. Now, it was probably something far more significant than ticks. Perhaps it was a financial debt that you felt like you were being crushed under, and you felt like man, Murphy just visited your house week in and week out. Maybe it was like your marriage was on the rocks, so there was marital infidelity. And you're crying out, deliver me. Maybe it was other sort of abusive relationships. Well, as we have said, we'll say it one final time this week. Who is First and Second Kings being written to? It's being written to some 300 years later after the stories that it shares to those who are Israelites in captivity in Babylon. And they were a people who were crying out, deliver us. Some of you are familiar with the album. It's a Christmas album called Behold the Lamb of God. It's, it's my favorite Christmas album. The, our, our worship band actually played the, through the whole album this past year as a part of as a concert to prepare our hearts for, for Christmas this year. It's written by a guy named Andrew Peterson. And my favorite song, the most haunting song, I believe, in the whole album is a song as it moves through the story of the whole Bible leading up to the incarnation, in which it captures the voice of Israel as they're looking for a Messiah. And the whole chorus of that song is this, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. What is it you need deliverance from? Well, the point of these stories, and there's three aspects and three chunks to this story, 
It speaks of God's deliverance to a people in captivity about the nature of God's deliverance. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Three things I want you to see. And my, um, my parents are here this morning, Dan and Beth Henley. They're right here in the middle. My dad has been a pastor for some 40 years and uh, so he's one of those old school pastors that likes alliteration. So in honor of him, all of our points will begin with an E. So just want you to know. So in honor of the old guy, E. First, we'll start with the enigma of God's deliverance. I had to dig deep. You got to find E's. You got to dig deep, people. You got to dig deep. Actually, the point comes from this illustration. In a story from world history, you know, one of the, God's great providences in World War II and one of what was considered to be one of the great turning points of World War II happened before World War II even began. You see, the German uh, army, the way they did intelligence was they encrypted all their intelligence through a machine called the Enigma machine. Some of you may know this from history. In the early 1930s, the Poles began to study this machine. They got some... Uh, uh, drawings of it, and actually were able to create a copycat version of the Enigma machine. Now, other countries didn't have this, but when, when Germany, Nazi Germany, inf- invaded Poland in 1939, and they, they allied with France and England, a few of their intelligence officers were able to escape Poland with this copycat Enigma machine and get ultimately to England, where the English and British intelligence officers, including a man named Alan Turing, were able to take the information they gleaned about Enigma and to create an early computer program that would be able to break the Enigma codes. And what it became, what ultimately was able, they were able to do is because they broke the Enigma codes, they were actually able to begin to hear and understand all of the ways in which Germany was speaking to one another. In fact, some considered, some historians considered this to be the decisive factor in World War II in the European theater. To be able to break this code and to know exactly what the German army was doing next and what the status of their army was, was decisive. In fact, uh, Andrew Roberts, who is a 21st century historian, said this, because he had, this is speaking of George Montgomery, uh, George Bernard Montgomery, a British general, because he had the invaluable advantage of being able to read Field Marshal Erwin Rommel's Enigma communications. General Bernard Montgomery knew how short the Germans were of men, ammunition, food, and above all, fuel during the Normandy invasion. And when he put Rommel's picture up in his caravan, he wanted to be seen to be almost reading his opponent's mind. But in fact, because of the intelligence he was indeed reading Rommel's mail. And so it is in this story. The omniscient God is reading the mail of the king of Syria. It, all the words, all the, he, the king of Syria it, it makes his plans with his counselors and his military generals, and yet God is able to share the information about what he is saying, even as it says, into his very bedroom. And he's able to warn the king of Israel and the Israelites, don't go to a certain place. And this utterly confuses the king of, of Syria. How in the world how in the world does the king of Israel keep doing this? They make their plans and they, make, they go through all of their strategy and they're going to set up this trap to get the king of Israel to kill him or to bring him under captivity and then he escapes their, their trap and he goes, oh, what happened? He's confused. That's what an enigma is. It's a mystery. 
that God is able to crack the enigma machine of his enemies. But you know what they can't do? They can't crack his. You see, God's ways are a mystery, and they can be puzzling. That indeed is what an enigma is. You can sense the frustration of the king of Syria here. He is exasperated. But the quiet ways of God's deliverance baffles and confounds God's enemies. Is there a spy in our midst? I might even say this, though. It doesn't, even, it doesn't just confound his, God's enemies. It actually even confounds, seems to confound God's own people. You see, there's a silence in the text. Does it tell us how God made known to the king of Israel, or to Elisha, the entrapment of the king of Syria? Does it say, oh, did, did, Elisha, did, he, did God come to Elisha in a dream and say, hey, in such and such a place, don't go there? Did God arrange for a spy in the midst of the king of Syria? Were there birds sitting on the windowsill of the palace? And like Disney characters, they ran off and they whispered into the ear of Elisha the plans of the king of Assyria. Or did God simply give Elisha some very strange ESP? What was it? It doesn't say. It doesn't tell us. The mystery of what God is willing to use. He leaves it open. What did God use in order to reveal the secrets of the king of Assyria? It doesn't say. It just says that God is able God was willing to share these secrets in order to save his people. You know, this has happened amongst God's church throughout its history, where God uses strange and mysterious things, maybe even, maybe even intuition, in order to save his people. There was a guy named George Wishart in the mid-1500s. He was a, a Scottish reformer even before uh, he was a forerunner to John Knox. Knox was actually Wishart's uh, bodyguard. And Wishart, on one occasion, was purporting to be, uh, someone wrote him a letter, and it was supposedly from a friend who said, I am dying, please come see me one last time. And so Wishart began to gather his things because he wanted to go see his friend one last time. But actually, the letter was a forgery, and it was actually from the religious Roman Catholic rulers who wanted to set up a trap for Wishart so that they might take him captive and put him to death and remove his leadership from the Reformed Church. But Wishart set out with his associates and with a few of his men, and they, they're carrying on to this, what he thinks is his friend's house, and they come to a hill, and suddenly Wishart stops, and he says to his men, I am forgiven by, forbidden by God to go on this journey. And he continued, instead, will some of you ride up ahead to some yonder place? And he pointed to a small hill to see what is there. And so a few of his friends went up over the hill, and as they crested the hill, they came over the hill, and they saw 60 horsemen lying in wait to catch Wishart. What did God use? Wish, it doesn't say. God used maybe sense of simply in, intuition in Wishart's heart and mind, the enigma of God's deliverance, of what he's willing to use. Perhaps it's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's indigestion. We don't know. But what it was is it was used by God for his deliverance. And it is as if the wider of kings is looking at the people of Israel who are enslaved, who are going, God, we are captive in Babylon. What are you going to use? How are you going to set us free? Who can, and it is like the writer of First and Second Kings in going, is going, we don't know. It's a mystery of what God might use and when he might save us and how he might save us. But here's what we can say. He is able. He is able. The protection of God is the continuing reality amongst his people. 
that he is able to protect his people from generation to generation, and he is willing to do it for us, and he has been willing to do it for all the history of his people. We can know that the mysterious God is on high, is willing to deliver, and is able to deliver through any sort of means, some strange, some very mysterious. And this is the testimony of the psalmist in multiple places of God's desire and willingness to deliver us. For example, in Psalm chapter 34, verse 7, it says this, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. In Psalm 124, in the Song of Ascents, it says this, If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, and then verse 6, But blessed be the Lord, who has not given us this prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the God who made heaven and earth is willing to use any part of the heavens and the earth in order to bring about your protection. This was the testimony of God's people all the way from the psalmist. And it is the testimony of the writers of First and Second Kings to God's people in slavery. And it's God's testimony to us that God's ways are mysterious. And they confound his enemies. And they can confound us as well. But ultimately, his ways are to protect us and to deliver us. Well, this drops us off where we are the rest of our story. The king of Aram, or Syria, is upset by the fact that Elijah is reading his mail and can hear all the secrets and all the counsel of his war chamber. And so one of the, the servants of the king of Aram suggests that Elisha is the one who knows about their plans. Now, it does, again, it doesn't say, how does Elisha know? It doesn't say even how this servant seems to know that Elisha knows, but he does. And so the king of Aram, uh, who isn't the sharpest tool in the shed, decides just after hearing that, that Elisha knows the very words that he speaks in his bedchamber, goes, hey, let's go set up a trap around Elisha. Let's go find him in Dothan and let's get rid of this guy. Now that's kind of odd since he has just been told that Elisha knows all the plans that he's made. And so therefore, him coming up to Dothan is not much a surprise to Elisha, but it was a surprise for someone else. The next day, Elisha's servant, some nameless guy, Elijah's servant justifiably, he gets up, he gets up with his morning coffee and he looks out and there Syria has surrounded the city of Dothan. And he spits out his morning coffee, he drops his cup, leaving it in shards on the ground, and he goes running back into the house in utter horror. What he could see is that he was utterly surrounded by his enemies. And this threatened, as the old English word would put it, to unman him, so to speak. This sapped his courage and choked his fear and paralyzed him in the face of the threats. This is what Elisha and his servant are facing. They are surrounded on all sides. They are essentially now held captive and besieged by the king of Syria and his army. Now again, real quick connection. How would this connect to the people of Israel in captivity? They would have looked up their life and they would have seen that they're surrounded by nothing but enslavement and those who hate them and those who want them dead. Their enemies have sway over them. And so they're hearing the story and they can connect themselves to the place of the servant of Elijah and go, yes, we too are held captive. And so it is with us, right? What holds you captive? What is it that surrounds you? 
that seems to hold us, whether it's an addictive sin? Are you enslaved to your own anger? To your own passivity? Is there something going on that seems to, in a, a, a spiritual persecution that seems to be holding you down? Perhaps it's actually something physical. It's not so much spiritual, but it's some bad news you've gotten from the oncologist. Or you have this sense of your mind and your body beginning to slip back into depression that you drop into every couple years. And you feel surrounded and bombarded by the evil one on all sides. What is the word of God here for us? Well, the servant goes running in in his fear. He can see the experience of the physical world around him, and he goes, we are surrounded. And he goes in, and he asks Elijah what to do. And Elijah says this, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What does Elisha do? What is his response To a people who can see a physical world and the circumstances of their life look rather dire. What does he say? You need to hold on to a deeper truth. That things are not always as they appear physically and outwardly. He doesn't see, that this servant doesn't see that God's deliverance is right there surrounding him as real and as more real than the very horses and chariots of the Syrian army. The servant Elijah could see the physical reality, but he couldn't see the spiritual reality. He could see the physical forces, but not the spiritual forces. He could see those who were against him, but he couldn't see those who were for him. And as a people unaccustomed, for a people who, as we're going to study science this week, as a people used to a modern world where we look at the things that we can observe and see before our eyes and are not used to looking behind that to the spiritual realities We need to look beyond, to see beyond these things that press in and say, we are more real. But God says there's a battle going on that is more real than the spiritual world or the physical world and the political world around you. The spiritual world is where the battle is actually being fought, he says. It's like this, the the image that we could use in understanding the the relationship between the spiritual and the physical world is that, have you ever seen a, a shadow play? It's where you have, you put up a sheet, a white sheet, you usually do it in the dark, and then you have two people who are acting, and behind them is a light. So they are physically acting, but what is going on is it's casting a shadow of that acting going on on the white sheet, so that those who are the audience are seeing what's out in front. So it is with the physical world. It is merely the shadow. It is not the reality of, the, of what is actually going on behind the screen, in which God is behind the screen, the spiritual warfare that is going on against the dominions and the principalities of this world, and we have a God who is mighty fighting behind the screen for us. But Elijah does not simply tell his servant about the spiritualities. What else does he do? He prays that his eyes would be open. And this is the point that I want you to see about God's deliverance is that we need to know that God is not only the one who is willing to deliver and the truth of it, but we also need to have the eyes to see his deliverance. That he is the God who delivers. He prays for a servant to see, to see the fact that there is more with us than there is with them. The facts need to be seen. It's great to have the facts and the truth, and that is lovely, and there are times in life where God says, I've given you the facts, and you need to cling to that. But he doesn't simply leave it there. Often he says, why don't you pray that you might also see the realities, that your eyes might be open, 
It's one thing to know the facts of what God can do. It's another thing to experience them and to see them with your own eyes. And so if I could say this, if you get nothing else today, here's the call. Are you surrounded? And do you feel pressed in from all sides, spiritually or emotionally, or something going on in your life in which you feel under attack and you long to to experience the Lord's deliverance, and yet you feel oppressed? There's a prayer in the Lord's Prayer. It's the final one. It's deliver me. And not only just, don't just pray for the Lord's deliverance, but would you pray that you might see, have the eyes to see the power of your God and the might that surrounds you? That we would have the eyes to see what's actually going on around us, to look at the world and beyond, to see beyond the sheet in the shadows of the physical battle and see the real spiritual battle going on. You see, a prayer for sight, for experiential knowing of experiencing the power and the might of God for you. It it invades the pastoral prayers in the most profound way in the New Testament. For example, it's how Jesus prays. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, he says this in verse 3, and this eternal life, he longs that his disciples would know the eternal life, that they know you, that is experiential knowing, the only true God in Jesus Christ you you have sent. And verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To what? To see my glory. And then Paul, in what I think may be the best and most beautiful pastoral prayer of all the New Testament, picks up this way in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Pricking it, for, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he's praying. Picking up down in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love. And here we get to the the point. May have strength to comprehend. That is the eyes of understanding. To know with all the saints what? What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What does Paul know that these people need to know? What they need to see? That they need to see the unspeakable, seemingly unfathomable power of God's love in their life. There is no better pastoral prayer than this. Not that ultimately that you would be delivered in this life. Not that there would be some, we'll pray that for physical provision and financial provision and a cry of your heart to the Lord would be this. Lord, I, don't, I long for your deliverance. But what I want for, for, from you more than anything else is to get a taste and a touch and an experience of your love for me in the midst, in the midst of this difficulty. Do you see what he prays for? What the pastoral prayer of Paul is? That we would have this experience of God's love. Just simply just walk through this. It's a powerful meditative experience just to do every once in a while. That if you're in a place where you feel surrounded to sit and meditate upon the love of Jesus Christ and the power of it, that it's like the, the God love surrounding you. Think about the length of God's love. How long is God's love? In Ephesians chapter 1, 4, God explained, Paul explained that from all of eternity, he has set his love on those whom he has chosen. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. It goes from eternity to eternity, his love for you. It does not end. How the height of God's love. David says in Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above, that's how great God's love for us. 
That when you look at the stars and use the skies and you say, God's love extends to me, it surrounds me like the universe around me. Did you see the pictures from the James Webb telescope photos this week? They're astounding. They're, they take your breath away. And that is the length of God's love for you. That they speak of God's profound power around you, the breadth of God's love. How wide is the love of God? Wide enough that it controls all things? Paul said in Ephesians 1.11 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, that there's not one stray molecule in the universe, or as you see in this story, that he has 10,000 upon 10,000 angels surrounding every square inch of this planet. What if you got to see that reality? Have you ever prayed for that? To see that degree of God's powerful love for you and the depth of it, how deep is God's love? Deep enough to reach into the lowest hell. To snag you into death from death itself to save you. And where do we get a sense, where do we get a picture of the profoundness of God's love for us? That if we would actually meditate upon it, we maybe, maybe we would begin to get a taste, a touch, just a sense of the, the experience of God's love finally. Well, there's no better place to look than in another hill. There are angels surrounding the hill around, around Dothan. But there was another hill one day outside of Jerusalem. And do you remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? And the soldiers come to, to, come to imprison him, to take him captive, to send him to, to judgment. And Peter takes out his sword and he lops off the servant from the temple's uh, ear. And Jesus looks at him. What does he say? Something odd. He says to Peter, do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? What's he saying? A legion, by the way, is between four and 6,000 soldiers. So what she is saying is this. Somewhere between 48,000 and 72,000 angels, mighty warriors from heaven, are at my disposal to remove these soldiers and to, take, to keep them from taking me captive. He's looking at Peter and saying, I don't lack the resources. I am laying down my life. I am not taking up the aid from heaven. Why would he not take up the aid? Why would he not take up the aid of the, of the angels who are chomping at the bit to save the second person of the Trinity from this death so that we might know the mystery of the cross? So that you might see the links to which God's Messiah will go in order to save you and come to your aid. That you know the measure that God would send his son to do battle against all the things that surround you. And what are the things that most powerfully surround you? They are called sin and death and the devil. And he came to do battle against the dominions of hell and to press them under his feet. And he will do this in a way that puzzles us. A Messiah who dies... He holds back the angels so that he may stay on the cross, so that he may remove all that has held us captive, all that has ruled over us, so that we can know now that these things that surround us, the principalities in the evil in our life, it cannot win. He has enslaved them. He has them chained. The picture is like the one from Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is walking up to this place of rest and outside it, he doesn't want to walk up to the place of rest because he comes up to the house and suddenly he sees two lions that look like they're going to tear him to pieces and they're growling at him. And a man who's a servant at the door says, come, come between the two lions because cannot you see that they are chained? And that is you. 
that you may feel like you are surrounded by the evil one and his lions on each side, and yet they are chained by the cross of Christ. They can no longer harm you because of what Jesus has done. Do you long to see the unseen legions? When you walk through the midst of family heartbreak, when it feels as if the evil one is trying to tear your children from you, when it feels as if your life is being crushed by either marital infidelity or sickness or depression, what do you need? You need to cry out and say, God, let me see. Let me see through the cross of Jesus. Open my eyes to see your love for me, even in this. Lastly, we learn about God's deliverance. Not only is it an enigma to us, it's a puzzle to God's enemies and even to his own people. Not only does he give it to us so that we, I, we may see it, but he also extends his deliverance beyond simply his people. So here's how the story continues. The, sto- the, the soldiers are struck blind. And actually the word isn't blind, it's more like bewilderment. They were dazed and confused, we might say. They're, they're, they are not of the right mind. They are kind of going about life, but they, they, they see, they think they can see, but they can't see rightly. And so Elijah takes advantage of this, and he goes, hey guys, you're not really looking for me. Remember you've been making those plans to catch the king of, of Samaria, of, of Israel, so let me take you to him. And so he takes them about a 10-mile walk from Dothan, south-southwest to Samaria. And there, as soon as they enter into the capital city of Israel, he then prays, and their eyes are opened. Now here it is, these soldiers are suddenly surrounded by those that are their enemies. Their life is over. They are done for. Can you imagine the fear and the utter horror that comes to mind? They, they, come, to, they come to their right mind, and as soon as they come to their right mind, they realize where they are, and they go, oh no, we're doomed. They had to be utterly petrified. <laughs> and the king of Samaria here, who's a, quite a bozo, but he's foaming at the mouth to kill these guys. The text actually makes him out to be almost childish in his excitement. You see, it repeats it. Can I kill him? Can I kill him? Can I kill him? Hey, 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 hey. Can I do it? And Elisha says, no, hold, hold down, Guido. All right, step back. And instead he calls for a feast to be laid before them. And instead he releases them into freedom. And he says, go in peace. What we see here is that God's deliverance extends to the spiritually blind and to those who are his spiritual enemies. What we see here is nearly an allegory of the nature of receiving the eyes of faith and what it's like to go from spiritual blindness and often the story that God does in our lives. What do we have with these Syrian soldiers? They think these guys are like probably like any other soldier. They're just there to do the task. We got sent out to capture this prophet from Israel. This is what we're doing. This is a day, this is a Tuesday in the life of the, of the army of, of Syria. They had no idea that they were coming up against the God of this world. They are blind to what they are doing. But God, in his mercy, blinds them physically, disorients them. And in that blindness, he allows them to enter a place of utter destruction and utter neediness. And then having positioned them perfectly at just the right place of desperate neediness, he then says, I'll open your eyes. And what do they see? For the first time, they begin to see, oh my, we are in deep trouble. Then having seen their need for mercy... And what awaits awaits them if they don't receive mercy, he then offers them not only mercy, but a banqueting table and freedom and peace. This is the pattern that God does over and over and over again in in the work of regeneration. 
that he allows the lost people of this world to put themselves in a place of utter destruction, and then he opens their eyes. And they look around and they go, oh my. That at the bottom of the bottle, at the end of the marriage, at the darkness of depression, at the place of utter, de- place of utter devastation, at the place of realizing that they deserve, that you deserve no mercy but nothing but judgment, God says, in that place, I offer you my mercy. And he opens our eyes to our need. This is what Paul, God does to Paul, right? Paul, bam, strikes him blind. Fill your need. Paul, you're persecuting me, the God of the universe, the God of Israel. Oh, no, I deserve death. That's okay, Paul. I'm going to send someone to pray for you and to open your eyes so that you may receive me. Do you see the links that God's deliverance will go? The scope of God's deliverance? You see, how will Israel in captivity read this? They are surrounded by enemies. And yet what they can see here is that God's deliverance would extend not just to his own covenant people, but it would extend to his very enemies. His offer of mercy extends to those who have even fought against him. The deliverance of God has go-go gadget arms that enfold not just his covenant people, but actually enfolds and offers to bring in those who were once his enemies. And this is an offer. This is an extension of mercy and deliverance to you who have been spiritually blind and you didn't even know it. That you have been an enemy of God. Is this you? Is this where you will find yourself? That's actually a mercy if you find yourself in a place of realizing, I deserve the judgment of God. You know, real judgment, you know who are really blind. The real blindness are those in which they don't understand that they're blind. Jesus says this in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus has healed a blind man. And the Pharisees are really ticked about this. And so they go to the formerly blind man and they, they, they kick him out of the temple. And Jesus finds the blind man and then has a, an argument with the Pharisees well, along with this blind man. And we pick up in John chapter 9, verse 35, and it says this. Jesus heard that they had cast this man out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man, once formerly blind man, answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and is he who is speaking to you? He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said, are we also blind? They understood what was going on. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. What is he saying? He's saying that those who are truly spiritually blind are those who believe that they see perfectly fine. Who believe that they see the world just fine. Believing that they're fine. Believing that their self-righteousness has made them right. Who believing that they're good with God and that they can do whatever they want. There's a religious version of this and there's an irreligious version of this. The religious version of this is where self-righteousness has confused us. And we believe self-righteousness and confused it with true righteousness. Where we believe all of our moral deeds have made us right with God. And we don't see the fullness of the evil of our sin. For you, maybe a dangerous prayer might be this. God, would you bring me to a place where I see my sin once again? Where I see once again my need for mercy? Well, there's an irreligious version of this as well. 
It's where we live in direct contradiction against God and we don't even know it. That's the Syrian soldiers, living as clear enemies of God's commands and God's ways, just like these Syrians. And we don't even see that God's commands are there to give us life, to set us free. He offers life and freedom and peace and feasting, and we are fighting against him and fighting against his ways. So here's the reality in case you can't see. First, the bad news. You're a sinner. That means you've fought against God. That means you've been an enemy of God by birth and by life. You've come up against him in every way, shape, and form. You have sinned against God in your desires, your thoughts, and your actions. You are selfish. So much so that even when you try to do good, you're really doing it for yourself. And when the consequences of such a life have led to perhaps crippling debt or crushing depression or a dehumanizing depravity in your life, your response has been to just simply get angry at God and accuse him. And all this leaves you deserving for him to do what? To bring his judgment down on you. Because you stand not before the king, the puny king of Israel, but you stand before a holy and mighty and all-knowing God who knows the depravity of your deepest desires and your most disgusting sins. But if such a description of your state scares you, then maybe your eyes are finally being opened. Maybe you're beginning to see, where your brain might be finally clearing. You may actually finally be seeing your need, and then, maybe then, you'll finally cry out, deliver me, deliver me, O God, from your wrath and from my enslavement to sin. Well, if that's, that's the bad news, here's the good news. The good news is that God places before those who can see who can see their utter need of him, a banqueting table, a feast, as Elisha does for these soldiers here. And he says, for you is a feast of my love and my power, in which you get to feast on the height and the breadth and the depth of my love. And I offer you my peace and my freedom. Would you take that up today? This is the God who offers you such peace, the ability to see, would your life be like John Patton? We'll close with this. John Patton was a missionary, a fairly famous one from the, the annals of Christian history. He went to the New Hebrides in the 19th century to the tribes there. One night he found himself in deep, deep trouble. The natives had gathered in their suspicion of this white man from afar and were angered towards this foreigner spreading a new view of the world and a new view of relating to God. And they were ticked. And they wanted Patton's head. So they surrounded Patton and his wife in their home one evening. They had no, no one to protect them, no one to come to their aid. And Patton and his wife thought for sure their doom had come, that the natives were about to burn down their house with them in it, that they would be killed that night, that this was the end. And they cried out for God's protection, but the attack never came. There was nothing that should have kept the attack from happening, and they didn't know why. They just knew that the attack never came, and they were saved. Well, a year later, the chief, the tribal chief who had led the native uprising to destroy Pat and his wife became a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one night, he was visiting in that very same home with Patton and his wife, and Patton asked him, why hadn't they, been, they brought the death blow down on him and his wife that night a year before? The chief answered, we were too scared because we, he said, we saw the men with the shining garments with drawn swords in their hands 
surrounding the mission grounds. What do we see here? That God kept his people safe, and not just John Patton. Who else did he keep safe? By showing and revealing the sword of his might and his power to the native chief, he saved him as well. This is God's offer. He is your deliverer. Do you have the eyes to see? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would, um, you would open our eyes. I pray for those in this room who claim to follow, claim to follow you like this servant. And they have they've not taken the time to sit and ask for the mercy of sight. Would you do that this morning? I pray for those in this room. I think of widows who are surrounded by the, the feeling of loneliness and loss. I pray that they would not just pray for deliverance, but they'd also pray for the God who is there. That they would see you in a palpable and experiential way. I pray for those who um, are surrounded by sin in their life, who are addicted and cannot seem to get free. They are lost and they're crushed under it. Lord, they long for deliverance. They want freedom. But also, Lord, they need to see you as the one who delivers them. Would you open their eyes to see? And Lord, those who are living their life thinking they are all good with you, Lord, would you do them the, the swift mercy of making them blind and bringing them to the place of destruction? Lord, I know of those in this room, there are parents who've prayed this for their children who've gone astray. And we, so we pray it again. That the, those, these parents who in this room are praying for their kids to come to the end of their rope so they might see Jesus, would you do that? For those kids who that they would wander into a place of such devastation and destruction, if that's what you're going to use to bring them, that you would bring them to that place and then open their eyes to the mercy of God and may they cling to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, the one who is our deliverer and our merciful God. Amen.